You know, that's why it's so invaluable to have someone from that jurisdiction. Absolutely, absolutely. They know the lay of the land, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he was he was an African-American detective. The perp was Afri African-American. And he said, there's only one barbershop that the African-Americans go to in this town. And he, like, knew where it was. And it wasn't far. It was within walking distance. So we drive over. We park down the block. He gets out of the car. He goes and looks in the window. He comes back. He goes, you're never going to believe it. He's in the chair. So... <laughs> So now there's about five or six people waiting to get haircuts. We go in. Eric Knight, yeah, you're under arrest for the murder of Dorothy Goldfarb. All the people are, you know. Oh. That, sounds, that sounds like an episode of Law and Order, not an episode of the uh, Sixers Squad in Coney Island. Come on. Yeah. Well, we, wa we wanted to give him the shock value to get his, you know, wheel spinning that maybe he would, you know, cooperate and make a statement. We didn't yeah. want him to think it was just, you know, the, uh, the, the summons, you know. So... We get him. We get him out of the chair with a half a haircut. We bring him back to the Atlantic City Police Department. We start interrogating him. He tells us nothing. No, I came to I came to Coney Island on the twenty fourth. I didn't come to Coney Island on the twenty third. I wasn't there. Ask my girlfriend. Ask my ex girlfriend. Ask my ex girlfriend. Ask my ex girlfriend. So what we do is we hold him on the on the warrant, and we go get a arrest warrant from the Brooklyn DA's office. But in the meantime, we go back to re-interview the girlfriend because we never actually spoke to her. We only spoke to the mother. Right. So when we go, we find her and we say, listen, you know, uh, freedom, uh, you broke up with him. Blah, blah. Yeah, that motherfucker, blah, blah. he come out of jail. He didn't want to work. He was lazy. He was getting high. Blah, blah, blah. I threw him the fuck out of here, you know? So, all right, you know, do you remember what day it was? She goes, yeah, I remember exactly what day it was. It was on the morning of the 23rd. So we're like, wait a second. Your, mother's your mother told us it was the 24th. No, no, it was the 23rd. How could you be sure? She goes, I wrote it down on my calendar. We're like, where's the calendar? She gets a little calendar, a little desktop calendar. And on the 23rd of January, it says, break free. She <laughs> broke free from freedom. Is that, is that how we get the name free? <laughs> Listen, he had the name, I think, already. But she wrote down break free which that's was very, great that's great evidence too right yeah we vouched the calendar so that kind of killed his alibi and then we go with the arrest warrant a couple of weeks later and we go take him and we're going to bring him back to uh to new york to process him you know so i'm sitting in the back of the car with him on the way back did the judge give you the speech you're not allowed to speak to him on the ride back did he give you that speech no, no, you know what, they, they didn't really, uh, they, they just said, listen, you know, he, he didn't make a statement, he asked for a lawyer, you know, you're not going to talk to him, so right, they, right. they kind of knew that, but so, we, we, you know, we didn't have any intention of, uh, of interviewing or anything, but we're in the car now, you know, coming back from Atlantic City, a couple hours, and he turns to me and he goes, I'm looking at a lot of time, aren't I? So I said, yeah. He goes, how much? I says, 25 to life. So he puts his head down, he shakes his head, he goes, Man, I can't do 25 to life. I said, well, that's what the murder rap is going to cost you, you know? He goes, I could do about 10 years. He says, you think you could get me a deal for 10 years? I said, listen, pal, you might be able, if you cooperate, to get a few years off your sentence. I says, maybe 15. I said, but you're not going to get 10. He goes, all right, see if you could talk to the district attorney. You know, I I'll take 15. So naturally, I write it down in my memo book. At the time, we had memo books. I put it on a five. I tell the DA's office about it. And we naturally, we used everything against them at trial. You know what I want to ask you? Obviously, this was a, a quite uh, bloody crime scene. 
there, uh, you know, she was stabbed, she, her head was bludgeoned. Um, was there ever any um, DNA connected to him? No. Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, he had gloves on. When she saw him come out of the apartment, it was cold, it was January. When, when the witness saw him come out of the apartment, he had gloves on, so there were no prints uh, left. Now, uh, when he was arrested for that trespass, he mm -hmm. had taken off his jacket. So they vouched that jacket as found property. We took the jacket and we tried to compare it to see if there was any blood on it. Of course, she had described the leather jacket, but you know, the, the DNA at that time, 1992, wasn't real good. I mean, they could tell you if it was human blood. Right, right. They'd have to have something to compare it to, which we did have the victim, so we could have compared it. But if it was old, the DNA would, uh, wouldn't be very helpful either. But we did try. We actually sent the jacket to the lab, but there was no, uh, nothing recoverable on his jacket. But, you know, Phil, it's like in these kind of cases, that's when juries are like, oh, how did he do it? He left no hair or fibers or blood or fingerprints, you know. And when they don't see that, when a case goes to trial, as you know, a jury has a hard time sometimes convicting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, th that's where the DA who does the case, the opening statement, the closing, that's where you have to lay things out for the jury and everything. Matter of fact, the DA that handled the case was a DA by the name of Ann Gutman. And there's a strange ending to the case that it's really not a happy ending, but um, she, uh, she did the case and, you know, seemed solid to everyone. And the jury came back and they acquitted him. They acquitted oh. him of murder. And when she polled the jury, they said they didn't believe the police testimony because there really wasn't, like you said, there wasn't DNA. It was a one witness case, which the district attorney's office was, uh, wasn't too happy to try, but really we didn't have anything else. So after she polled the jury, she called me, she told me, and, you know, it was quite upsetting. And, um, the, uh, following weeks, maybe three weeks later, a month later, I get a call from Ann Gutman. I'm doing a day tour. And she says, how you doing? I said, good. She goes, listen, she goes, uh, are you going to be down in court anytime soon? So I said, no, why? What's the matter? So she says, uh, I got something I want to show you related to the case. I said, well, I'm doing a day tour. I'll shoot down there now. So I go down to her office. I walk in, she closes the door. I sit down and she throws a letter on the desk in front of me. She says, open the letter and read it. That's from the, uh, the head of the jurors on the case. And the letter goes on to say that, um, dear Ms. Gutman, uh, I'm very upset about the fact that we acquitted uh, Robert Knight. Uh, we knew he was guilty, but we just didn't believe the police. And now I'm having nightmares at night. And is there anything we can do? And, uh, you know, she went on to say that she hopes she never reads his name in the newspaper again, but she knew they knew he did it. It was just a thing for whatever reason, they had a, a problem with the police testimony. And, you know, it was several police officers, myself, housing, uh, crime scene, you know, a lot of uh, first officer, a lot of, a lot of police officers testified. And for whatever reason, they, uh, they just didn't buy it and they let him go. And uh, wow. it was an unfortunate thing, you know, and going back to the DNA, there really wasn't a lot of blood, believe it or not, because the, the knife wound in the throat, she bled in and it was like minimal and the back of the head didn't bleed out. It, it, it caused subdural hematomas in the, in the brain and stuff. So it, it, she like bled inside the head as well, you know? So it wasn't a real bloody crime scene. So uh, if he was, I, if he was willing to plead and say, take 15 to life, why didn't the, the DA go with that? If she didn't think the case was that strong? 
Well, there was probably two elements to that. One was maybe his his uh, defense attorney said, no, we can get you off. It's a one witness case. She's the crackhead, which they attacked her credibility. But she stood up on the stand and she said, no, he come out of the apartment. He told me he robbed the, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was in front of the building uh, earlier in the day. She put him on the scene and knowing about the 25, uh, I'm sorry, $100,000 that was allegedly in the washing machine, which wasn't, we found, we found the bank book. The, uh, the money was in the bank. That was just a bad rumor that that had circulated. You know, somebody. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you that because I mean that's that's crazy, especially for an old person to put a hundred thousand dollars in a uh, washing machine. You know. Yeah, she had gone to the bank the day she went the day of the murder. She had gone to the bank. She withdrew like forty bucks. She spent thirty something dollars in the supermarket, and she only had we only estimated she had about six or seven dollars that she was actually murdered for. But we found the bank book. The hundred thousand had been deposited a while back and uh somehow or another that rumor got started and it was obviously uh the cause of her uh, did you did you ever follow up on that get that guy free who walked out walked on this murder what what happened you know, to him? i i did he he went back to atlantic city never hear from him again and uh he actually came from an infamous family his cousin was uh was another guy by the name of eric knight and Eric Knight was the guy who was arrested for lighting the fire, the wall bombs fire on Ocean Avenue in Brooklyn, where the six firemen died. He had been convicted of it. He was let out on a technicality after 10 years. And we had him on another homicide. And uh, he had killed a homeless woman. Such a crazy case that was. That okay. was a real off-the-wall case. So he came, from, he came from a bad family. But I guess when he, when he got off on the murder, he figured... Let me stay out of Coney Island. Bad luck over there. And uh, he must have stood down in Jersey. It was Jersey's problem, I guess. We never heard. I wanted to ask you, uh, on every homicide, you always question yourself when it's over. Um, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Uh, you second guess yourself sometimes. You know, in this one, obviously, you got the right guy. But it was sort of what they call jury nullification whatever reason the jury didn't want to believe uh, the police. And there's many factors to that. In fact, today it's probably even worse. You know, because uh, it seems like no one likes the police anymore, but it's, that's very frustrating because you, you, you got the right guy and then the jury decided to, uh, to not convict him. Yeah. You know, they always say Brooklyn juries are a little uh, funky. Uh, they could go one way or the other. Um, you know, the jury pool is the jury pool. The system we have is uh, you're, you're judged by your jury of your peers. And it was obvious, based on the letter that Ann Gutman got, that the uh, the lead juror felt that, uh, you know, that it was uh, the wrong verdict. And she had nightmares about it. And, uh, you know, it was obviously too late, though. Once they ruled, they ruled, you know. And right. What I was the vote? Do you know what the, the vote was? Well, the vote. Uh, obviously it was, it was unanimous for, uh, for, uh, acquittal, but I don't know how it went down in the beginning. I think they had, they had deliberated for, uh, for, I, I know about a day and a half, I believe it's a long time ago. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but they deliberated for a little while and, uh, they just, uh, you know, sometimes juries have crazy ideas in the head or who's got a party to go to, or it's the weekend, yeah. and, you know, they want to get it over with. And the simplest way out of it sometimes is, is, uh, you know, an acquittal. Well, I always know that when, when there's a, a crime scene, they, they, they expect 
especially today, they, they have the thing called the CSI effect, where because everyone from the jury pool is watching these TV shows, you know, forensic files now, I mean, maybe not in 92, but where everyone is a police expert, you know? Yes. And they're taught, oh, if there's no physical evidence, then the guy didn't do it. Like juries think in absolutes. There's no fibers. There's no fingerprints. There's no DNA. There's no bloody footprints. Then he must not have done it, you know? Yeah. Instead of thinking that there's possibly a way that, like you said, he wore gloves. Yeah. You know, there's, there's uh, television makes a lot of uh, CSI Miami experts uh, yeah. in the jury pool too, I'm sure. But, you know, really, I, I've, I've been involved in uh, quite a few trials and stuff. And recently I was involved in a trial as a civilian. And so I got to see, you know, as a detective, you only get to be in the, in the courtroom for your testimony and that's it. So I saw a trial from beginning to end. And when I saw how the DA did such a powerful open going through all the evidence and she, they, they utilized a, uh, what they call a compilation video. Of course, of all the video cameras today, this particular murder, numerous uh, acts of the murder and numerous uh, parts of the murder were caught on video and they put it together and they highlighted different things. So between the open and the summation, she put it together where there wasn't a gun recovered. There wasn't any physical evidence recovered, DNA, fingerprints, anything like that. But with the video and different uh, areas of investigation from, from detectives, FBI, and the testimony, she put it together in a beautiful package. They convicted the guy in, in hours as opposed to days, you know? So, so yeah. I think that's really a good part of it. Now, I'm not trying to knock the DA on this case back in 92. She did a terrific job. It was there. It was a one witness case, which is obviously difficult, as you know, Bill. But the Brooklyn DA's office a lot of times would tell you, go find another witness. We're not, we're not going to write it up for a one witness case. Right. So, but it was, Phil, you think also uh, from 1992 till now, how homicide investigation has changed. And some of the biggest changes are like in almost every homicide case, a cell phone comes into play somewhere as, oh, sure. part, as part of the evidence, video cameras come into play somewhere, you know, uh, there's cameras everywhere. You know, so they can almost connect the dots from point A to point Z through video, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And a few years back, I mean, there was a couple of uh, high profile, uh, there was a cop murder or a shooting. And it was like every time something like that happened, they'd have video of it, you know? So, so now, like you said, there's cameras everywhere. Recently, when there was... Uh, there was a terrorist attack in Midtown Manhattan where the guy drove on the sidewalk and ran over a bunch of people. They had cameras on him, you know, the, the traffic cameras. Right. And they had them coming into, from the Bronx, up in Manhattan, driving. They had his whole location. They knew the route he took based on all of these uh, surveillance cameras. Oh, you know, they, all, they, all, they have that thing called the uh, Remington plate reader. I was just going to say that. The plate yeah, reader. and it takes pictures of cars coming in. They can track you from wherever, you know, and so there's a lot more science to it these days than there was obviously in 1992. Yeah, I, I believe those plate readers can read dozens of plates per second. So yeah, they're yeah. very valuable. And Manhattan after 9-11, they locked it down with plate readers and cameras. You can't get into Manhattan without passing one of those. I mean, for the most part, you know, so going back to that case with that terrorist, they, they knew his route from when he came into Manhattan from the Bronx and, and the route he took, you know. Which yeah, I mean, as exactly. you say, when you talk about homicide investigation and how it's changed and how the science has made it uh, 
so much, I, it's never easy, but easier to uh, gather evidence and to really track people because, you know, I don't know anyone personally that doesn't have a cell phone and that's a walking, talking GPS uh, machine, you know? Absolutely. So Absolutely. The, the cell phones, you know, there's even ways, I mean, you can shut the thing off and it right. still has capability, certain phones that it could still ping in different locations and stuff like that. But it's funny, you're talking about homicide investigation and how it, uh, it morphed into what it is today and how it got better. You, I watched one of your other episodes with Michael O'Keefe and he was talking about the accelerants in Austin. I only had a handful of cases maybe that I had anything to do with where it was in Austin, but he brought up such a great point about how gasoline leaves a tremendous trace and an alcohol-based accelerant leaves hardly any. So, you know, these things are, I found, when I was watching it, I found it so interesting. It was like, I wanted to go back on the job and go to an in-service training. And because, you know, I was one of those guys, I don't know, I paid attention. Listen, if the guy was boring and he was just repeating himself, I'd fall asleep. But when it was interesting stuff, when you went to the CIC course or homicide course, you know, the interesting stuff, it really captivated me. You know, I, I paid attention to it and, and things like that, like what O'Keefe was talking about with the, with the accelerant, you know, those are important things if you're working a case and, and you, you know, you want to have as much knowledge and experience as you can. L listen, my area of expertise that I thought over time, it didn't, it, you know, I didn't go on the job with it, but as time went on, I was a pretty good interviewer. I would get a, a feel for people. And when I talked to them, it, you know, not right away, obviously, but as time went on, I could tell when a guy was lying between body language, the way they reacted to questions that were thrown in that you knew the answer to, and then when they would lie. And sometimes those lies, we would accept them because, you know, they would make up the, you know, it wasn't me, it was they would make up another perpetrator, the ghost perp, we would call it. So sure. as long as he was putting himself on the scene, put himself in the mix, Maybe he wasn't going to admit to, to, to committing the crime, but he puts himself there. It was good enough with all the rest of the stuff that you would gather on an investigation to put him in the trick bag for the homicide or whatever the crime was, you know?